There is a time for everything, the Bible says. And the Lord is in control of this time. Isn't that a powerful thing? And we're on his side. And there is a time prophetically for everything. And Luther was at a crucial time and a season for every activity under heavens, a time to be silent and a time to speak. You will see how bold and how courageous these men were because they were against the institution and they had the power to kill. Now we, we might have the courage, but we have this thing called human rights we hide, we hide under. Not so back then. So I'll go ahead and read it because I feel a little, um, I, I hate reading things, but I, I'm being recorded, so I better, better say everything right. Um, so just four years after 1417, when the 95 Thesis had been completed, a powerful publication which combined words and images were going to fall upon the established church like a bomb. The publication um, was completed in May 1521, and its title was Passional Christi und Antichristi. The odds were stacked against Cranach the Elder, the um, the artist and authors Melanchthon, and they also consulted with Schwetzvega. They knew that Luther's book had been burned at, um, in Frankfurt, and his, his excommunication had been official a short five months earlier in January. The authors also knew that Tetzel still demanded for Luther to be burned at the stake, and to make matters worse, they did not know um, if Luther was alive, since no one knew of his whereabouts since March. Despite all these uncertainties and pressures, these brave souls approached this extremely controversial publication with boldness, courage, and conviction. The time in which the Passional Christi und Antichristi was being made would have been controversial on both sides. On the reformer's side, there was an iconoclastic riot in Wittenberg, which escalated by the end of that same year. Karlstadt and Zwilling were especially instrumental in bringing into question the usage of works of religious art and called for its destruction. And on the Catholic side, their booklet was most decisively an assault on the church and on the pope. Throughout history, images have been made to disseminate information. The Catholic Church understood the power of art in as, in as early as the sixth century during the reign of Pope Gregory the Great. Art served as the venue for meditation, indoctrination, and above all, legitimation of power. By the early 16th century, the accessibility to prints gave more power to the common layman who especially used art as their strongest weapon against the Catholic Church. Germany was at the forefront. Um, of course, this is the 95 Thesis, which got published. Germany was at the forefront of this battle, especially in making prints, because the printing press had been invented in Mainz just 65 years prior to Luther's protest. Um, in printing what they called Flugschrift. My German is horrible, but it's basically flukes is like fly, schrift is writings. So now they could print and these things would fly. Um, and this is how the thesis then was also published. Re 
Reformation ideology's use of, use of art can be seen in a single printed pop-up pamphlet that dates to around 1500s. So there it is. This is an image um, that actually testifies of a popular dissatisfaction with the Pope since the Hussite movement in Bohemia. On its front, it shows Pope Alexander VI as a stately pontiff with the inscription above stating Alexander VI Pontifex Maximus, which we all know is a title by a Roman emperor. Then you would flap it and look what you would see, a hideous image revealing the Pope as the devil, and then the inscription saying, I am the Pope. People were dissatisfied with the corruption in the church, but didn't know how to articulate it theologically. The common person did not have access to scripture and thus the tools to pop properly engage. It is no wonder that when Luther wrote his 95 Thesis in Wittenberg, he became their hero. Just two years later, in 1520, Cranach the Elder created a portrait of Luther that gave the people an, an image of their hero, which was widely distributed. Below the image, Cranach wrote in Latin that the paper and the artist would soon be forgotten, but not the image of Luther. One year, Later, in 1521, another print of Luther was re released, circa January. Um, this was during the time when Luther would have been tried at Worms and subsequently kidnapped. The print was made by Hans Baldung, who made Luther look like a saint with a halo and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The image was banned, hunted down, burned, and their owners were accused of idolatry by papal authorities. A few prints survive, but often they have been mutilated. As an example, here we see a defacement of Luther, including a mocking mustache making him look like the devil, and a black ink on his eye that actually cancels his heavenward gaze. Anyhow, German artists like Albrecht Dürer and Cranach the Elder mastered the new technique of printmaking and became successful. Ironically, Cranach, the one on the right here, the elder, sharpened his skills making a catalog of Friedrich the Wise's extensive relic collection, something he would later despise. Both artists Albrecht and Cranach sided with the Reformation, but Cranach the Elder had especially become close friends with Luther. The publication Passional Christi und Antichristi followed the tradition of religious art. And the booklet had two purposes. It was actually a medieval prayer book, and the other purpose, of course, was an anti-papal propaganda. Um, and this kind of prayer, if, you, if, if we have time, we'll see how much we make it, you'll see how there's a positive side, which is Jesus, and on the other side, there's the negative side, which is, which is the beast. And they go back and forth like that, which actually is con congruent with um, Luther's theology of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and then the kingdom of earth. Um, 
And this is actually happens in, in the Bible. If you, if you think of the Lord's Prayer, for instance, give us our daily bread, as well as lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is characteristic of the Christian life to be positioned in a place somewhere between the now and the not yet, between evil and redemption, temptation and deliverance. The reader viewer using Passionale as a sort of prayer book is invited to meditate on the life of Christ and warned against the corruption of the papacy, moving between a meditative form of prayer and a negative form of petitionary prayer for delivery from the, from the uh, papal antichrist. So the booklet was produced in the wake of an increase in sales of indulgences so that it would be specifically um, contrast Christ's spiritual kingdom against papal ambitious, ambitious for temporal kingdom. It highlighted true discipleship and Christ's model of self-emptying. Due to time constraints, I'm only going to focus on a few illustrations on the booklet. So if you, you want to leave it or look at it in the, the um, PowerPoint, that's fine. The first pair of images set the stage for the, the antithesis, antithesis, sorry, drawing attention to the contrast between the perfect spiritual rule of Jesus Christ and the corrupt rule of the Pope on earth. The image depicts Christ as he retreats to the wilderness as a group of followers attempt to crown him beneath this illustration. There are only Bible verses from John 18 or Luke 22 that says, my kingdom is not of this world and the greatest amongst you should be like the smallest or the lowest. Um, on the other side, they only used papal decretals. Very few times did they put their own words. They were actually just taking what the popes had said about themselves. So here we see a decretal on the Council of Vienna on the papal side that claimed papal power was superior to secular authorities. Notice on the image how the pope has a stronger army behind him than the kings. The second illustration and Cranach develops further the contrast between heavenly and earthly kingdoms. In these pages, we see the crown of thorns being placed on Jesus' head, which he accepts. And we know that the Bible talks about, in the text below, about him receiving a purple cloak as a gesture of cynical mockery. And look at the dog as well. There's a dog, and look at the animals and how Cranach depicts the animals in these illustrations. The dog in the foreground actually stands to represent the kind of people that are putting the crown of thorns on Jesus's head. On the opposite side, of course, the Pope is accepting the triple tiara in all of its glory. Um, and he is enhanced with their, the whole ceremony. You see there's people pay, playing trumpets on the window outside. Um, it's a big to-do. And the ornate ecclesiastical cloaks. But the text underneath refers to that purple cloak. And it says from, again, papal decretals, it says, um, the Emperor Constantine has given us the imperial crown, the purple cloak, the scarlet tunic, and other imperial regalia like this and the scepter. Let's go to the next image. 
Um, the message of kenosis, which is self-emptying, is one of the main purposes of this book. So here we have this kenosis happening as Jesus lowers himself to wash his disciples' feet like a slave in the Roman Empire, like a servant. Another verse in, in this underneath the, the image of Jesus bowing is basically talking about Luke 22, when the disciples are arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest because they thought Jesus was going to be a temporal king. And so this contrasting, again, the kingdom of heaven. On the other side, um, the disciples um, are supposed to understand this inversion of material values from spiritual ones. And Jesus taught them as he demonstrated by washing his, their feet. The image, image shows them looking at each, each other in dismay. On the opposite image, the Pope is seated high on his baldachin, that is the little cloth thing over his head, receiving kings and princes who stoop down to kiss his feet. And much like a Roman emperor, he has his hands raised in accepting this homage to himself. Notice how the Pope is always placed spatially above Christ in the compositions of these two images. The Pope is higher throughout the booklet. There is an implied line also in the heads of the disciples going down towards Jesus' head, while the archbishops on the other side are looking up towards their pope. And there is no dismay on their side. There's expressions of pride and maybe an attempt to gain that position themselves. I have included this one, and I don't know which page it is on the booklet, but this is interesting to me because of what Mrs. White talks about in The Great Controversy. There was images like this in Jan Hus's time, and she talks about this in The Great Controversy. Those images are long destroyed. We don't have them anymore. So I think the closest thing we can get to it is this image right here because the reformers actually looked at what had been done during Huss's period and copied that so that they are one in the same movement. There's a line that can be drawn here. So um, here's what Mrs. White describes. Beginning with an open attack on the Pope's supremacy, they were soon silenced, this is two preachers, by the authorities. But being unwilling to relinquish their purpose, they had resorted to other measures. They were artists. Students? They were artists. Being artists as well as preachers, they proceeded to exercise their skill. In a place open to the public, they drew two pictures. One represented the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, meek and sitting upon a donkey. The fall, and then followed by his disciples in travel-worn garments and naked feet. The other picture portrayed a pontifical procession, the Pope arrayed in his rich robes and triple crown, mounted upon a horse, magnificently adorned, preceded by trumpets and followed by cardinals, prelates, and in a dazzling array. So this is the closest we can get to this description that she has. Apparently, students, 
These images made such an impression on the mind of Huss that led him to a closer study of the Bible and of Wycliffe's writing. This type of contrasting had been created before by the Hussite movement and, and by a certain Nicholas of Dresden. Now, I, I pause here. The, the, the preachers at Dresden had been forbidden to preach in Dresden, so they came to Bohemia, and that's how we get um, Huss um, inspired. And the, it, the book that they read, that they had at the time, this Nicholas of Dresden, was called The Old Color and the New. The reformers had learned from history, and the Passional, this book, was, um, was basically Cranach's version of an old, older tradition by the reformers. Um, these texts preceded the translation of the Bible. Wait, 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 I need to say this. I skipped a line. If we think of what the life of Huss accomplished and how these images contributed to spread the message, I cannot help but wonder how many more were inspired by the Passional when it was also the first time that there were biblical translations available to the people. These precede the vernacular Bible that, that uh, Luther translated and possibly, maybe, made him inspired to translate the entire book. But this is my conjecture. Um, the penultimate illustration of the Passionale is very important because here Christ is taking an active role, expulsing the merchants from the temple, while on the opposite side, the Pope sell indulgences. The story is taken, of course, from John 2, when Jesus made a scourge of small uh, cords and drove the money changers out of the temple. And what did he say? Take these away from the temple. These do not belong here. So it was a, a direct assault on what the popes were doing uh, with money in the church. This is the strongest assault against the indulgences. Cranach's visual commentary on this issue included humor as he insinuated again that the Pope was like the dog in the illustration by paralleling the dog's posture below with the Pope's above. Um, on the Antichrist side, the authors quote Paul telling Thessalonians of a great apostasy at the time of the man of lawlessness, also known as the Antichrist, that would be revealed. This quote was followed by Daniel 11, which identified the Pope with the Antichrist and the beast of Revelation. I mean, they were not mincing words. They were not mincing illustrations. It was as clear as day. And as a matter of fact, Luther believed in making things simple. That was one of his aims in translating the Bible. He wanted people to understand for themselves. Very important point for the reformers. The authors then proceeded to quote papal documents on the other side, and specifically the Symmachian forgeries, where the Pope could only be judged by his own mouth. He was exempt from capital punishment and took Christ's prerogative in the remission of sins through indulgences. The Desire of Ages has a uh, description of Christ's expulsion of the merchants from the temple 
at the times Jesus' divinity flashed through his humanity, and Mrs. White says that he looks into the future throughout generations. And she says, he sees how priests and rulers will, will turn the needy from their right and forbid that the gospel shall be preached to the poor. He sees how the love of God will be concealed from the sinners and men will make merchandise of his grace. The corruption of money from religious institutions still stand between believers and Christ today. The Catholic Church is especially subject to this because they have no need of transparency if they have the capability of forgiving sins, they are trapped into a vicious cycle because they can sin, they can rape children, they can do whatever, and then just say, well, just say a few you know, prayers and do this and that, and you're fine. So they're trapped. I feel sorry for them because they think they have this power which does not belong to them. They're stuck in their own vicious cycle. The reformers wanted to have sound and pure theology and return to the simple Bible. Truth was at the core. The abuses had been around too long and they were willing to risk their lives to expose the truth. The final illustration, now some people are like, oh, how could they do that? But look, they have, they're very bold, very bold is basically Jesus ascending to heaven and the Pope being cast to hell. Not a politically correct image. We don't understand that because we're living in a different era, but they were bold. This is the only time in the booklet that the Pope is below Christ. The inscription on the side of the Antichrist comes from Revelation 19 and, and 2 Thessalonians 2, stating that the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had enticed by performing signs on his behalf. There were those taken in by these signs and who worshipped his image. It proceeds to tell us that the beast will be revealed and these uh, will be cast down and will fall by the glory of the Lord's coming. The booklet contains 13 contrasting pairs and a total of 26 um, images, so I can't talk about them all. But um, let me just go back just for fun, just for fun. Uh, details, you with my students, I always, say, I always say, look at the image, look at it, because artists are telling you something. You see the little baby donkey following the donkey behind Jesus? He's looking like he really loves his mommy, and, and he's innocent, you know. I just saw puppies before I came, and I couldn't help but pet them. They're so cute. So there's this innocence with the animal there. On the other side, look at the Pope's horses. You know how horses sometimes fight with each other with their mouth, you know? The artist is putting all of these details, telling you the spirit, the different spirit of these two groups. Anyway, sorry, this is definitely out of my script, but yeah, back to, uh, where was I? Okay, um, so the book was successful. They made five editions of it, and they made a sixth edition in Latin. Um, I think 
some people went back and forth. If Luther was, was uh, very involved with this, he was. He, he probably chose a lot of the illustrations. The artist and Melanchthon did the, the script and the art, but Luther was a mastermind behind it as well. The sixth edition, though, because tensions had increased, there were people killed, there were persecutions. The sixth edition, the artist decided to do a change that was a little bit more poignant, a little bit stronger. Um, and you don't have that in your book, uh, not the, the change. You do have it in, goodness, which page is it? Oh, I, yeah, page 11 on your book. He decided to change that. You see that um, here on your booklet, um, Jesus is tired from ministering to the people, and he decides he needs to go and pray and be with the Father. He looks tired, while, of course, on the other side, the Pope is not tired at all. He's quite hefty. He's got a lot excess on him, and he's being carried. Of course, he never walks, much less barefooted. But because the tensions had increased, the artist changed it to Jesus carrying the cross and the Pope being carried on the litter. So um, other, let me go on, because there's more to this battle of imagery, and I can't just stay on this book alone, because or else we're out of time. Um, and I'm always notoriously like over time, so I don't want to get into the next lecture, because I really am looking forward to it. But there were images all the time, back and forth against one another. Um, some that I won't even show you because they did get a little lewd and crass. And I'm thinking, you know, as Christians, if we ever have to defend what we believe in, we don't have to swear, right? We don't have to wear, use bad words. I mean, we're, we feel pretty strongly about it, but we don't have to because there were images where they were, you know, defecating the Pope's tiara or... Eh, just stuff. But anyhow, this is, I, I thought, was the strongest um, art piece here. So, in a print made later, um, other contemporary works of art can attest that other artists continued to illustrate Luther as Jesus cleansing the temple. In a print made by Hans Holbein the Younger, he shows Luther, you see, Luther as Hercules. And the image shows Luther defeating Aristotle, Aquinas, oh come Nicholas of Lura, Peter Lombard, and Duns Scotus, and he's about to dispatch on Hochstraten. Now, for those historians that know who these people are, they're all theologians, and we're uh, bringing tradition, tradition, tradition to the church, and he's getting rid of all these guys. Um, the artist enthusiastically depicted Luther's effort to rid the church of accumulated religious tradition. Um, Luther's role was viewed as a radical purifier, returning to an altered, unaltered roots of the Christian faith and sola scriptura. Now the crossfire, uh, I'm not touching anything, I promise. Now the crossfire of artistic accusations increased. And in 1529, artist Hans Brossmer released his print that pointed to Luther as being the seven-headed dragon described by Revelation 13. Luther's heads are accompanied by titles, doctor, saint, infidel, priest, fanatic, 
church advisor, and Bar Barabbas. Yeah, not so nice. Well, the Protestants weren't left behind. Just one year later, they fired back in the form of a popular. Now, this is not what they fired back, but just pay, pay attention with me so you can understand what they were communicating. In the form of a Catholic devotional print, this one right here, which was supposed to, for you, as a, as a good, pious Christian, you would buy this, then you would go to the Mass, and you would say a Pater Noster, which is a prayer, and you would be promised 430 years of indulgence, okay? This print, listen to the story behind the images here, was an illustration of a story created to legitimize transubstantiation, the church's power of, of transforming the host into Christ's physical body and the wine into his real blood. The story originated in the 8th century uh, in a biography of Pope Gregory. The lady who baked the bread of the host says, uh-uh, I don't believe they're going to change this into Christ's body because I, I baked the bread myself. Well, that was an offense, so that, you know, prompted Pope Gregory then to say this very devout prayer, and guess what happened? Upon his prayer, poof, the finger of Christ was bleeding on the table. The actual flesh and blood of Christ was on the table. Well, anyways, the story gets inflated, and by the 13th century, it was poof, the entire body of Christ is resurrected on the altar as the Pope prays. So this illustration increased in popularity, especially because in the year 1500, there was going to be a big jubilee Okay, and there was another thing that had been just published because of the printing press. There was a book that was almost just as popular as the Bible in the Middle Ages. It was called the Golden Legend. The Golden Legend had all of the saints illustrated. Many times it was illuminated, man, you know, writings, illustrations and stories of all the saints and all of this extra stuff. But it had been printed. So what the, the Protestants do now is a direct attack on these things, okay? It mocks Catholic. This is what they, oh, sorry. This is the golden legend. Sorry, I'm running behind. This is what they did. This is what they did to crossfire the other illustration of, of Luther with the seven heads. So, the resurrected Christ is substituted for an indulgence hanging on the cross. The host, usually placed on the altar, is replaced by a seven-headed monster with heads of clergy and the popes at the center wearing his triple tiara. The chalice, where one would see the wine representing Christ's blood, we see a flame of fire from hell. Croner, speaking of this print, continues and says, the papal flags fly at both sides, and on the seal of the indulgence letters stands a Medici coat of arms of Pope Clement VII. Contrasted with the humble Arma Christi, 
the crossland sponge crown and thorns on the top. Um, the papacy symbol on the bottom profaned their setting at, with worldly pomp, not some transgressive reformer, but rather the church itself has defiled this altar. The battle continued on so that artists continued to attack the church even into the second generation. When Wittenberg Paul uh, Eber died in 1569, Cranach the Younger, who inherited his father's workshop, was commissioned to make a memorial of his life entitled Vineyard of the Lord. The scene is based on the story found in Matthew 21 through 5. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So in this image, the Protestants are viewing themselves as the latter people that Christ called to work on the vineyard. Luther is at the center. Do you see him? I have a small little red circle. Uh, because of his work of the Reformation divided the church. Um, then you have Philip, Philip Melanchthon um, in the water. Melanchthon, as, as, as some of you know, helped translate the Bible. He was a humanist. He knew the original language. Um, and he also was a big believer in going back to the sources. So he is going to the source of water to, to, to feed the, 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 the vineyard. Um, then there's also Johannes Forster. Um, Johannes Forster is representing um, watering the parched soil. He was a Bible translator as well, but he also traveled extensively uh, tending to the young shoots of the Reformation. Bugenhagen organized, is another person, he's a, he has the superintendent's coat. He organized and managed several Reformation movements throughout as he ordained pastors for the new faith. The hoe implements order, and the robe served to stress the role of this man who Luther once introduced as the Bishop of Wittenberg. Others include, included represent Gerd Mayor, Paul Krell, Kasper Krusiger, Justus Jonas, and all these other reformers. I'm not going to even say all their names. There's a lot of them. Um, on the other side, in the middle, there's a little bit of sense of humor again. The people from the other side is bringing the muck into the reformer side. So they're recycling some things from the Catholic side. Despite the rift, the idea depicted is that they were working the same vineyard. The work being done on the other side is less, less flattering. The fence is in disarray, the vineyard looks dead, and what is left of it is being killed. Probably with the many martyrs being burned at the stake, Cranach the Younger depicts a bishop in the vineyard that is burning instead of tending to the vineyard. Notice how this is central and close to the dividing path as those who had been killed were in the dividing line between Catholics and Protestants. The artist also comments on the corruption within the church by depicting monks drinking as they work or playing cards as deck uh, let me show you there. I don't know if you can see. That one's drinking. There's deck, uh, a card of decks falling out of that guy in the middle. 
And then if you look down here, instead of like getting water from the well, they're actually stomping it with rocks. Christ, who is the owner of the vineyard, is dressed more modestly than the Pope and his curia. And he comes to, of course, pay them, and he's already paid them. There is a coin in the Pope's hand, but it's like extended, like, that's it? You're not going to give us more? And it kind of, again, refers to Matthew 29 through 16, which reads, So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to, gr to grumble against the landowner. Do you see how these people, despite not having uh, the, the Bible, they knew their Bible. They were reading it. And it's visible in the artwork in, in what's the writing underneath it. So in a few years later, about 13 years later, another church commissioned this same painting to be done again by the same artist. This time, though, if you, if you pay attention, the colors are darker and the, there's more of a contrast between both sides uh, with a path in the middle. By this time, there were wars, persecution of the Protestants, the massacre of the Huguenots in France had already happened so that their differences had been solidified. The Catholic Church, in turn, celebrated these victories with works of art as well. The massacre of St. Bartholomew uh, had actually several things. I can't even go into all the celebrations that took place, but Mrs. White talks about a fresco by Giorgio Vasari, and here it's what it looks like. And thank you, Getty Images, <laughs> for putting your, your brand right in the middle. I couldn't find a better picture. But um, this is basically, they celebrated the victory over the Protestants. They also, Pope Gregory XIII, minted a coin of this victory. And on the coin, if you look, one side is of him, on the other side is the Night of St. Bartholomew, the massacre. The Roman Church was tenacious in maintaining its position. However, Catholics did consider some of the Protestant accusations at the Council of Trent, and I believe that, I don't know, Professor Pettibone, that's when they started stopping charge to charge. If I, if I got correct sources, they stopped charging for the indulgences, but they kept giving them. Um, so they revised a few things, um, but the Council of Trent also affirmed them theologically on several other issues. Um, nothing in art had been overlooked, including Michelangelo's um, Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel, especially that one. There was a uh, uh, Biagio de Cesena, he was the pa papal master of ceremonies, he complained about it, and he said, this is very disgraceful a thing to have made in so honorable a place, all those nude figures showing their nakedness so shamelessly. So they had someone go and paint it over. <laughs> So it's touched up. It's not all Michelangelo now. Um, but at the Trent uh, Council, Catholic um, counter-reformation artistic efforts were decisive and gave birth to an entire genre of art called the Baroque style. 
and it included the expansion of Rome. The Baroque has been a style, called a style of persuasion and art used to speak of their victory over Protestantism. Architectural renovations um, included were unprecedented. They begun, begun with Pope Paul III. The Counter-Reformation popes widened, paved, straightened roads of Rome to accommodate for pilgrimages. Now we have several uh, primary source documents that many people wanted, complained endlessly of them losing their houses over the Pope because he wanted to straighten the street and your house happened to be in the middle of the street he wanted and excuse you, you're gonna have to get out of here and move. So there were a lot of unsatisfaction, but they did it. They were tenacious. The Pope uh, founded schools of art and commissioned some of the greatest architects such as Michelangelo, Carlo Maderno, and Bernini to resurrect Rome again as the eternal city. Michelangelo was summoned almost immediately after the Council of Trent to renovate the Palazzo Nuovo or Campidoglio, which is the civic center for government, which the popes wanted to control. The statue of Marcus Aurelius, which at the time was believed to be Constantine, was moved to the Campidoglio Piazza. This statue was to legitimize um, papal desire to control the affairs of state. Michelangelo was urged in 1547 to finish St. Peter's, oh sorry, there it is, and erect the central dome. By the 17th century, the church declared the counter-reformation effort a success and celebrated its triumph. Baroque art and architecture became a global style because the Catholic missionaries, especially the Jesuits, went all over the world and spread the style with them. The celebrate, oh, sorry. The celebratory style is theatrical. It, in its illusionism, it crashes into your space. This is accomplished through emotionally charged images, extreme contrast and perspective, mixing two-dimensional paintings with three-dimensional sculpture and soaring architectural spaces. One of the culminating um, works of this effort, planned by Bernini but, but, but executed through his protege Giovanni Battista Gaoli, is Il Gesù, the mother church for the Jesuit order. The ceiling evokes a mystical vision of the triumph of Christ's name, which is the name of Jesuits as well. So it's a double message. The painting appropriately titled Triumph of the Name of Jesus achieves such illusionism that it makes most viewers, let me show you this is it, confused about the borders between painting, sculpture, and architecture. The ascension of the name of Jesus is depicted in a central area of extreme light. The painting consists of dramatic groupings of people, some of which are saved and some are damned. On the darker, damned side, the bodies are spilling out into our space, accompanied by angels of greenish color. The entire artistic message of this church is about how the Jesuits are um, taking the message and ridding the church of infidels. 
The ideology has been made explicit through several sculptural um, depicting um, Ignatius de Loyola stepping on Luther or stepping on heretics. But inside this church, there is a tomb by, and here it is, of, of Ignatius Loyola. It is very elaborate. And in 1699, Pierre Le Gros, a French um, artist, made a sculpture called, right there next to it, um, Religion Overthrowing Heresy and Hatred. Here, we see a woman, which is supposedly religion, carrying a cross on one arm and flames of fire in her other hand, which she hurls towards the contorted figures falling away from her. By her side, there is a puti, which is a little angel, ripping the pages of the Swiss reformer Zwingli, his book. Hatred is depicted above a male, uh, let me see, a male who is none other than Luther, falling away from her. We know it's Luther, and the church can't change that because the artist actually engraved his name on us, the spine of the book that is right beneath him. It is evident that almost 200 years after Luther, the church was still making counter-reformation art against her dissenter. The imperialist church relentlessly hung on to their propagandistic efforts. However, by the time of Clement XI in the early 18th century, the papacy had become economically, politically, and militarily weak. Several architectural and artistic efforts had cost the church greatly, depleting its financial resources and ultimately influence its influence so that the fate of the world was no longer decided in Rome. Despite this, the church clung on to privileges, monopolies, prerogatives, and immunities claimed to the Holy See for generations so that eventually the Jesuits were expulsed from the Portuguese Empire, Spain, France, and two Sicilies in Parma. Rome's tenacious if refusal to compromise on any principle um, precipitated the conflict in which um, it became the loser when uh, it, they were humiliated, Pope Pius VII, by Napoleon. So the effects of Luther's 1517 protests in the town, little town of Wittenberg, rippled to such consequences that it affected every aspect of life as we know it on both sides of the religious fence. In hindsight, Luther's influence was a watershed in religion, art, music, literature, the German language, and the worldwide culture. The artistic weapons used on both sides, Protestant and Catholic, had great effect on our world and are still with us today. This only happened because reformers stood for truth with boldness, courage, and conviction. In unison, their voices echo through the ages that Christ's kingdom is not of this world and that truth will prevail. What about truth today, though? Is truth dead? 
has art so bombarded or overstimulated our minds that we are numb to truth? Have we been shocked so many times that we have become dormant in a late stage of Laodicea? Will truth come out victorious during our generation? I pray that we will all stand for truth with courage, boldness, and conviction as so many have done before us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.